a long time ago on a podcast far, far away. Mitchell, what did I tell you about copyright infringement? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Playwright Repertory Podcast. I'm Sarah Lena Sparks, joined once again by my co-host and legal liability, Mitchell Huntley. Mitchell, can you tell the audience what today's episode is about? Oh, let me tell you. I opened up my copy of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, and I thought, what the hell? The arc of the character is so gosh darn familiar. Almost like I've seen it everywhere. Well, Mitchell, do you know what we call that? A lack of creativity? An archetype. Archetype! Oh, you mean like like Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces? Yes, what an amazing, completely unscripted response. Today's episode is about Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which some of you may know from your English class as The Hero's Journey. Why talk about The Hero's Journey, you might ask? Well, this is released on a very special day. A very special day. It is May the 4th. Be, be with, with you. you. Oh, oh, you're snap. so in sync. Wow. wow. Um, <laughs> so it is May the 4th, and May the 4th sounds a lot like May the 4th. So us Star Wars uh, nerds decided that it should be Star Wars Day. So may the 4th be with you. Um, and Always. we wanted to do something fun with this episode. And since the Star Wars story specifically more the original trilogy are based um really off of a hero the hero of a thousand faces we wanted to do a special talking about the hero's journey yeah so we wanted to basically talk about the formulation of the hero's journey and joseph campbell as well as how that fits into the original film star wars or as some people might know it episode four a new hope star wars and (laughs) and talk about what each of the different parts of the what's called the monomyth, how each one fits within the narrative of Star Wars and how that was came to be influenced and came to be written that way. Now, you may be wondering, who is Joseph Campbell? What the heck is a hero's journey? Well, we are here to tell you just a little snippety snip little bit of it. Everything that will be covered in this podcast is really only a small sliver. So if this excites you in any way, or if you're interested in storytelling and crafting, I really highly encourage you to find more about The Hero's Journey. Joseph Campbell helps with all stories, no matter what. All right, so who is Joseph Campbell? Joseph Campbell um, was born in White Plains, New York, in 1904 and passed in 1987. He really started off as a teacher and a really deep thinker. As a kid, he was really interested in Native American and Indigenous American mythology. He was just interested how they really represent themselves in these metaphysical stories and he was always 
thinking the question of what mythology I am living. So he was born and raised as an Irish Catholic, and that was a big part of his community. And he really was kind of torn between the things that he has been taught um, within his family and within his church life and the things that he has read and looked up and he was a scholar from a really young age. He said that when he was in fifth grade, he read everything in his library about Native American storytelling so much that the librarians let him go to the back and see whatever he wanted and go to those stockpiles that normally only librarians are supposed Dang. to touch. Um, so star. we got a big nerd with big ideas, but I think that's how most of great things start. And then as Joseph grew up, he had the opportunity to travel really all around the world. He wanted to know more about stories and religion. He really kind of started off as a religious scholar, wanting to learn everything about Eastern and Western religion and storytelling and practices. So as Joseph Campbell got a little bit older, um, he really started work as a more religious scholar in which he was studying these stories. He wanted to study how different religions and different cultures and societies were putting these stories together. And the first one he really learned about was the story of the Buddha and Buddhism. And um, he saw a huge similarity between that of Buddha and that of Jesus Christ. And that really sparked something really big in his brain of how did these two completely different cultures, two kind of different sides of the world, two different time periods come up with this similar story. And so he traveled um, all around the world, basically, and learned about stories of religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs and how they tell their stories and he learned a lot about hinduism buddhism um what's that one in that has that's like really similar to christianity that we also learned out oh zoroastrianism April. zoroastrianism um he tried to learn as much as he could about the world he also studied medieval storytelling for a while the story of saints and other religious iconography and figures and Athorian tales. And he noticed that they all had such similar storylines and characters. And then he studied in France for a while and his mind got open to art because it was that time where Picasso and everybody was there. Basically, if you wanted to be in the artist community, you were in Paris with Gertrude Stein. And he was there as well. And he got open to the ideas of Carl Jung, who is a psychologist. If you are taking AP psychology at the moment, you 100% know who this person is and should know the vocab word of collective consciousness. So... That means that everybody in the whole world has some stories within them that are all kind of connected to each other. And the way that Carl Jung found this was he was 
asking his patients about their dreams, and he noticed really big similarities between all of them. And people who were going through completely different things would have similar dreams. And so that really sparked his idea that there is some sort of collective consciousness between everyone. So our boy Carl found this collective consciousness and he started thinking about universal symbolism and are there things that are ingrained in everybody um symbols that they have i think he talked about the symbol of a circle a lot um and this kind of helped joseph campbell think that people from all over the world have some ideas kind of just ingrained in them unconsciously like how people in India would think of the same story arc of the Buddha as Christians in the Middle East would think of the same story arc for Jesus Christ. Um, so this is what he was studying for a really long time. And then the Great Depression happened. And what Joseph Campbell did, he found a cabin in the woods and lived there for five years and just read books during the Great Depression. And he said that that was really critical to this entire experience and thought process because he just learned more and more and more about stories and storytelling and about how these different cultures, their story matches this story. This is always there, but that's sometimes there and that's there. Um, so he read for five years, basically. With the original and, social distancer. Exactly. Um, and thought about um, all of these ideas. Um, and he was starting to write a little. And this is really a quick Spark note of his life. I really highly suggest looking way more into it. This is a really simplified version. He lived with uh, Steinbeck. Yes, John so Steinbeck, which he, is crazy. He's a really well-regarded person in the artists and an intellectual community. Um, and so he started writing, and he was like a professor, and he was writing. And he, a publishing company, approached him and was talking about, you know, we want you to write a book about all this research that you've been doing. And he wanted to talk about mythology and they didn't really know where they wanted to go. And then he said, well, here's what I want to do. I want to make a how to read mythology. Because after all of this research, he kind of said, all this mythology, all this storytelling, it's really all the same. And it's a monomyth, which is really what his whole thing is about, is that all mythology is basically one mythology and it's the hero's journey. And so he said, I wanted to make a how-to book on mythology. So this book that we all praise in study and regard of the hero of a thousand faces was originally written as a how-to book um and that's what it was pitched as and that's how it got <laughs> Myths for dummies. yeah basically <laughs> um and he wanted to propose he had some really big ideas that he wanted to approach with this monomyth and one of the things that he figured out which i think is obvious in when you think about it, but it was it was just really, I think, eye-opening, is he said 
all stories are told because really life is hard. And one quote from him that I wrote down was, life on the surface is unendurable. It's a fierce and ferocious thing. Um, And he said, really, you know, we all go through these experiences and no matter what kind of life you're living, what kind of situation you're in, there is stuff that is just unbearable and it's painful. And he thinks that a lot of the reason why we tell any kind of story is to put ourselves in that metaphysical world where we can relate and deal with our own emotions, which I think is just really resonating to theater artists because I think we tell ourselves the same thing all the time and you know it kind of puts the whole world to stage in like a different light of which everybody any story that's ever been told is really for the same reason that we tell theater so theater artists and all kinds of artists and storytelling it's really all the same so basically Joseph Campbell is a pretty cool guy. He's a pretty, just really deep thinker. I got a lot of this information from a documentary called Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, which was made in 1987 and directed by Janelle Balnick and David Kennard. I highly recommend watching it. Don't watch it if you don't want to think about things because he talks about religion a lot and it made my head kind of hurt, like in a good way. <laughs> but if you're not in that kind of mood, I wouldn't watch it. Like the religion, head hurting, just, religion head hurting like a, like Indiana Jones and in the Raiders of the uh, Lost Ark. Yeah. Um, and so he's also just cool guy. He like retired and just moved to Hawaii with his wife at the end of his life because he was like, I don't care. I'm just going to relax now, which I really feel on a spiritual level. <laughs> um, anyway, now Mitchell is going to kind of break it down more and talk about what really could apply to your own writing, which is the monomyth and the hero's journey. Right. So the uh, monomyth, or what we refer to as the hero's journey, is uh, an archetypal structure that that Campbell sort of put down to paper that can be found in myth and folklore throughout different times and places, like Sarah mentioned. The theory of the monomyth is that every heroic story that we tell follows this structure generally. Although there may be variations, some omissions, this is generally what we find when we look at all the myths and folklore various different heroes. This is what we'll find. Campbell describes the journey in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, by saying, quote, a hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. And I think that it really encompasses the different, all the different parts of this uh, journey going from the uh, common day into the unknown and from that achieving a victory and achieving uh, the boons, which is a really funny word if you don't know what that <laughs> means. Yeah. Basically just like, I, I don't like to use the word spoils, but like like the rewards of victory, whether it be physical, metaphysical, just emotional. You can tell just from that description, you can think of so many different stories like I mentioned in the intro, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, like all those different stories have what he just described more generally and what I'm about to describe specifically. The whole monomyth in the hero's journey is a three-act structure, because of course it's a three-act structure. We love in dramatic uh, storytelling and 
literature and film, we love a three-act structure. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe we can just make me have another one of these mini-episodes sometimes where we talk about the three-act structure. But anyway, so there's three acts. There's departure, initiation, and return. So... In the departure, the hero must leave the world he lives in, the world he calls home, the mundane world, the known, as it's called. And this is sort of the call to adventure and uh, passing through the threshold into the um, into the unknown, which is into the unknown, into the unknown. Careful, careful, careful. Oh, ah, let's be careful. We talked about my copyright infringement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was watching um, the Thomas Middleditch and Ben Schwartz improv uh, special, and at one point, Middleditch says Snickers bar, and then Schwartz goes, "You mean a candy bar?" And he goes, "Ah, oh, yes, I mean a generic candy bar." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's the departure. Uh, the initiation is when the ultimate goal of the piece is achieved. Ultimate goal of the journey is achieved. The hero is transformed in some way. And the return is how, or rather if, the hero returns to the world he once lived in. And whether he is the same, most usually most of the time he's changed. I'm, of course, using the he generically. Just There's lots of different examples where a woman is the hero um, in a hero's journey. Uh, one of the specific examples I saw when I looked up was, of course, Jane Eyre which I thought was really interesting. I just watched Jane Eyre last night, the one with Michael Fassbender. Gotta say, not my favorite. Ooh. It's a little, it's like a little spooky. Okay, okay. I mean, like, I know he's nice because he doesn't put his wife in an insane asylum, but also you didn't have to lock her in, like, the walls of your house and make her go even crazier like that's not healthy either you know (laughs) so of these three different acts altogether there are 17 stages of the monomyth and of course since he published this in uh, 1949 published the hero with a thousand faces there have been many different scholars who have revised it had different theories of what it should be but we're of course going to be going off of joseph campbell's original 17 stage structure just so clear that because this is also the version that Star Wars. George Lucas. George Lucas. George Lucas, like, really studied Campbell's work when writing the original trilogy. He also spoke, he'll, he'll, like, speak for him, and he recognized him at a lot of galas and functions, so he really honors Joseph Campbell, and I think that's one of the only, like, not the only. The first trilogy is, like, basically perfect, but one of the big reasons for that is because of the hero's journey, yeah. I think. Well, our thing um, that we, that's really interesting, is that uh, we often find that these stories are much more compelling. That's one of the big things about the archetype. We'll talk more about this later, but we often find that stories that fit this kind of archetype that we've heard before, sort of maybe the familiarity of it uh, leads people to be very much to enjoy it and to find worth from the works that do uh, that. They follow. like get more payoff. They find more payoff from the works that follow archetypal this structures. This structure, yeah. Yeah. So as Sarah was saying, Star Wars was like almost immediately recognized. This is this is the motto myth, and that comes for good reason. After Lucas, uh, after Lucas finished American Graffiti, he said, "Quote," and this is in the Power of the Myth documentary. He said, "Quote." It came to me that there was. 
really no modern use of mythology. So that's when I started doing more strenuous research on fairy tales, folklore, and mythology, and I started reading Joe's books. It was very eerie, because in reading The Hero with a Thousand Faces, I began to realize that my first draft of Star Wars was following classic motifs, which is interesting because he didn't originally start to write this with the myth It's just kind of there. He He wanted to write something that had mythology to it, but he wasn't studying the structure first. He was, I know that George Lucas has said um, that Star Wars was created as like a fairy tale with modern themes. Exactly. Which is really interesting because then he started to notice that it was already starting to look like these uh, different structures, the structure that Joseph Campbell, he had put down. So it's really, I think, I don't know if he started tailoring it toward this part. I don't know if he started tailoring it more towards that specifically when he realized it. He said it was quote, quote eerie. I believe that he did start tailoring it to Joseph Campbell's structure. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm pretty sure he did. And so what I'll be explaining right now is I'll go through the 17 stages of the monomyth. Not all of them are used in the original Star Wars, but most of them are. So I'll be going through right now the 17 stages and explaining where you can see that when you rewatch when you rewatch or watch for the first time, hopefully rewatch because it's a great film. Hopefully you've seen. Yeah, it if you're old enough to listen to this podcast, you should have already watched a new hope. You should watch. Yeah, you should watch Star Wars and see where each of these parts of the story fit in. I know for myself, yesterday, yesterday while working on the research, I after looking at the monomyth, I went back and watched it, and I noticed each of the different points, and I was like, oh, it's so clear. There's all these points of the monomyth in the film. Yeah, so I'm going to go through right now the 17 stages of the monomyth. First, we're going to start with the Act 1, which is the departure. And the start of this is, of course, the call to adventure, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's when the adventure and the goal is given to the hero, telling him to go into the unknown. I know, don't start with the song. And <laughs> this is seen in Star Wars as Leia's message getting played in full, asking for Obi-Wan to go to the Alderaan system. After the call to adventure is the refusal of the call, which is basically that the uh, hero refuses because they cannot imagine going out of the life they live in the known. Well, this is seen in uh, Star Wars when Luke refuses to go with Obi-Wan initially because he has a life here. Um, because he farm. just wants to get some power converters at Tashi Station. I was going to go to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. and uh, He doesn't sound like that. <laughs> you sound like an old man. Once again, one more time, Mitchell's 65 years old. <laughs> I was going to go to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. Yeah, that one's better. That one's better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Which is not why he doesn't want to go with Obi-Wan. But, yeah, so... After the refusal of the call, uh, you hear about meeting the mentor. And this is a little bit out of order because we meet the we meet the mentor before the refusal of the call. But of course, the mentor is Obi-Wan. And typically the uh, mentor is also known as the supernatural aid. And of course, the force being this supernatural. Everything that surrounds us, it surrounds us penetrates us oh terrible we use the word penetrate so <laughs> no it's wonderful <laughs> love the film uh-huh Pen- the word penetrate just ugh. it's like moist yeah <laughs> oh 
Obi-Wan tells Luke about his father being a Jedi and that Luke should learn the ways of the Force. This course comes before the refusal to call in Star Wars. Now, the next two stages of the monument, stages three and four, are a bit out of order. I would say from my analysis, they're out of order in Star Wars, but it's really, you know. So there's the crossing the first threshold, which is when Luke, Obi-Wan, Han, Chewie, and the rest of them are chased by the Empire while they take off from Mos Eisley Spaceport. Um, would you not argue that crossing the first threshold? I would argue that that's when he goes to the cantina. I don't know about that. And he sees all of these different kind of worlds that he's not used to before. I can that can definitely be argued. And I feel like that also kind In the of documentary fits- that I watched last night when they talked about the first crash of the threshold, they showed pictures of the cantina. Okay. Well, that still doesn't dispel what I'm about to say about the order the out of orderness of it. So for crossing the first threshold, this is when the hero goes from the known to the unknown. So I could argue, you could argue that going, going into space for the first time would be from the known to the unknown. You could argue, like Sarah says, that going to Moss Eisley is going to itself going from the known to the unknown. Either way, the hero is going from the known world that he's known into this unknown, which is the start of his journey. That's the crossing the first threshold. The next is the belly of the whale, which is named after the uh, biblical story of Jonah and the whale, where God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no way, uh, goes on a boat, and then gets swallowed by a whale. Classic. Classics. You know, classic. Classic Jonah. Classic Jonah. Always oh, getting swallowed by a whale. <laughs> and so in and so while he's in the belly of the whale, uh, Jonah comes to the realization that he will, in fact, uh, go to... Uh, He'll, in fact, go to Nineveh. So, I don't know what Sarah's documentary said about this one, but my analysis, I thought, was the belly of the whale. When the hero is finally separated from the world he once knew, and that's stripped away from him. And so now he's in the unknown. Um, but I identified this I as... Would, what, did, what did you say that was in Star Wars? I said this is when Luke comes across the remains of his aunt and uncle. I was going to say the same thing! Yes! Yes! No, yes! Ding, ding, ding! Oh, so. Ding, ding, ding! I'm green. Yay! Which leads us to Act 2. So Act 2, initiation is the name of the act. It begins with the Road of Trials. This is seen, typically they're in threes because myths love threes. I think, like, humans love threes. It's a really satisfying number. Like the Illuminati, right? The triangle, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's, yeah. So it's basically the hero must go through different trials in the journey. Typically, they fail a couple of them along the way. Of course, this in Star Wars is the rescue in the Death Star of first getting pulled into the tractor beam by the Death Star and then um, rescuing Leia, which it kind of encompasses a lot of what initiation, the beginning of initiation is. Then there's the next the next two um, stages of the hero's journey, which are the meeting with the goddess and the woman as temptress. Now, sexism aside, the two parts of this journey, two parts of the journey can be seen from, I think can be seen from the perspectives of Luke and Han, which is really interesting that since he's seen this message, he suddenly has Leia up on this pedestal of someone we need, someone who needs help, someone we should rescue. And Han's like, and Han (laughs) is like, this will only cause trouble. And really, so I think from that the meeting with the goddess and the woman as temptress, of course, are, I think, the beginning of when they first, when our hero meets Leia. 
and the uh, meeting with the goddess is from Luke's perspective, and the woman as temptress is from Han's perspective. That's totally debatable, and I know Sarah will probably have a different point with that. Uh, no. Yeah. I agree. Okay. I think the the woman as temptress is probably the most is probably the debatable part. I don't think um, Lucas chose to make that that strong. You know. Mm-hmm. I like because you can take. I mean, it's like a, literally like a choose your own adventure. You can take what you will with his outline, and I just don't think Lucas really made the woman as temptress a thing. I think so because too, yeah. even Han doesn't. He's not really tempted by her. He doesn't actually want anything to do with her. Yeah, I mean, there's you know? of course the, oh, he thinks the line where he's like, "You think a princess and a guy like me?" And Luke goes, "No." Yeah. So quickly. <laughs> they're, if anything's they're both, the temptress. They're both horny males, really. Yeah, I don't know if anything's really the temptress because she's not tempting them to do anything besides like save the galaxy. So I don't yeah. know. I, I don't know. I yeah. If anything's the temptress, it's just like Han could have left and he didn't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So the next stage, which is probably one of the biggest ones, is the atonement with the father, also known as Abyss. The Abyss. This is where the hero must change and move forward, usually through an encounter with a father figure. The biggest example is, is the world's biggest spoiler with uh, Darth Vader being Luke's father. Which, if you don't know by now, come on. <laughs> but, I mean, in the lens of just a new hope... I would say this is when Obi-Wan dies. Exactly. Yeah. Although you can also look at the whole trilogy from the view of the monument, mm-hmm. which is really but interesting. We're just gonna use but we're just going to use the st- New Hope lens. Star Wars. Yes. I-, I will always call it Star Wars first, even though I was introduced to it as a New Hope because I was born after 1990 when we started to have the actual like episodes. Um, but I still think of it as Star Wars. This atonement with the father or a father figure is when Obi-Wan dies and the impact it has on Luke when he just goes off on the stormtroopers when he sees this happen. So I think that's the big, that's the atonement with the father and the abyss where he has to change because he no longer can rely on Obi-Wan to be this, um, this mentor. Say Obi-Wan one time. I already did. I said it many times. Yeah, no, but say his name really quickly. Obi-Wan. Say it one more time. Obi-Wan. Okay, like... (laughs) Half of the time you say it weird, you go like, oh, you go like Obi Wan. Obi Wan. Like I don't know. <laughs> is, like, like, is my California is my California accent coming out? Yeah, it's like Obi Wan. Obi Wan. Yeah, he's saying like <laughs> that. Obi Wan t- took the four or five. The also, seven. side note: I am so excited for that Ewan McGregor Obi Wan oh, series. Oh my god, I am so excited for that! I cannot wait for that to happen. Everybody uh, watching that on Disney Plus. I can't wait. Yeah. I always forget that he is Scottish. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Because I only watch him in things where he is, like, British. Then you and watch so then interviews he talks, with him. Yeah, and I'm and like, he, oh. That's like, I remember I saw I saw a play with um, Daniel Ratcliffe. And he did an American, uh, American dialect for the uh, actual show. And then afterwards, when they did like the the Broadway Cares um, stuff, he started talking in his British his British uh, dialect, and I went, "Whoa, 
Or like <laughs> when forgot. you watch Doctor Strange and then you hear Benedict Cumberbatch with the English accent. And you hear him he's say just like, penguins and you go, I forgot about that. <laughs> and he just sounds weird when he does Doctor Strange. They should have just kept his regular dialect. Yeah. <laughs> so Back to the hero. Back journey. to Star Wars. Okay, so the next stage is called apotheosis, which is a fun term. It's um, a big word. It's a big word, and I will definitely name a play after it at one point in my life. But you will. I mm-hmm. will. And the and so this is the point when a greater understanding in the hero is achieved after the uh, after the atonement uh, with the father. And I would argue this is a bit of a jump forward in the story, but this is the moment that Obi Wan's Force Ghost tells Luke to use the Force use to guide the, the proton force, missiles Luke. and not rely on his computer, thus cementing Luke's belief in the Force and that he is, of course, Force sensitive and he can use it. And so this is he's not just Force sensitive; he's a Jedi. Maz Kanata is Force sensitive. He is a Jedi. Okay. Finn is Force sensitive. Ray is a Jedi. Let's get this right, All okay? All the Jedi live in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't care what anybody says. I loved that moment, okay? Yeah. Okay, let me have it. Could, it it could have been cooler says, with I all the Force Ghosts. I am the Jedi. Could it have been cooler with all the Force Ghosts behind her? Yeah, get out of here. But, I, uh, no, but you know, I, think, I won't trade I it for the world. I think it was done the way it was supposed to be done. I loved that it was just the stars. I'm a fan I don't want to see... Serviced. I don't want to see all of the ghosts, okay? I just want to hear them and see the stars, and then I know it. Because the Force, it's not just visual, it's spiritual, okay? So yeah, that's the uh, apotheosis. when That's when uh, a greater understanding is found in the hero, Luke. And of course, the next one is probably the easiest one to understand from like a plot standpoint. And that is the ultimate boon. Ah, that word boon again. This is, of course, the achievement of the goal. You know, kaboon. Um, the Death Star is no more. Oh. Tarki's blown up. <laughs> the rebels have won in this movie. Yeah, so that's probably the easiest one is that the destruction of the Death Star. That's the ultimate boon. Which is one of the best additions in the, the like, 2000s rendition of the movies is the explosion effect I think is much better now. That, well, that's one of the only things that's that works. That's the only one. <laughs> one of the only yeah. ones. Yeah. So now we've we have finished act two. Huzzah. That's act two? Oh my god, there's still act three. There's act three. Act three is very much not included with a few exceptions. I think really only one exception in this one. Uh, so Return is probably the least fleshed out in the original film. Of course, it's very fleshed out in uh, Return of the Jedi, hence Return. But yeah, so other stages in the Return Act 3 is there's the refusal of Return, which is pretty straightforward. The magic flight, which is how the um, hero gets back to the world he knows. Um, the rescue from without, crossing the Return threshold, the master of two worlds, and the freedom to live. Fun fact about the freedom to live, which is used in the most recent film, We've already spoiled, so I'm just going to say, at the very end, uh, when Rey buries the uh, the lightsabers, that is a the freedom to live, and to basically to uh, let the past be behind and to move forward. That's a good example of the freedom to live, as much as I know there's people out there who don't like the film, 
that's actually a really good example of that part. I like that moment. I'm a fan and I felt serviced. I like that moment. Yeah. So of these of these different parts of it, parts of the return, there's only one that has a parallel, but it's earlier in the journey. And this is the rescue from without, which is when we see Han return the Millennium Falcon to um, save Luke from the TIE fighters and Darth Vader who are like about to get him. That is the uh, rescue from without with the people who the hero has helped in some way when they return to aid him. And uh, I think, Sarah, you have something else to say about this. Something that Joseph Campbell kind of put together of that moment where the people come and help him. It's this really kind of touching part of the hero's journey because he said he based this off of Shelton Howard's Foundations of Morality in which the first law of nature is to protect yourself. But why are there some circumstances where you would instinctually, you know, protect another person? And that is the foundation of morality. It's that there is something in us that says, no, you need to protect other people and keep other people safe. And sometimes other people need protection just as much as you do. And I just think that's really like a really touching part of the hero's journey of it's actually bigger than the hero, you know? Yeah. The hero has gone out of the hero's way to protect others, and others will protect him as well. Yeah. That's a really touching, really touching part of it. So that concludes the uh, 17 stages of the monomyth. If you want to look up more, this is all... So much stuff's online. You can read the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. You can watch any of the documentaries. Mention The Power of Myth and Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey. Amazing films, books. And now we're going to talk about why study this? Why look at this? Why look at archetypes? What use do they have? And how do we see them today? And something that Joseph Campbell talked about is he says that this is a quote. He says that the myth has to relate to the cosmology of today and that if a mythological image has to be explained, then it's not working. And I think that is really helpful if you're trying to write stories with these kind of archetypes and structures. You know, I think sometimes we listen to old stories and they just don't make sense. And that's why, you know, you have George Lucas come and make this kind of old story, but with all this new things. And look at how well that did. If you take these stories and apply them to you and your feelings and to your world, I think you're going to find a lot of success in that because it is something that we unconsciously want to hear, whether you say it or not. There are a lot of people who nowadays really argue against a hero's journey and try to stray away from it i am not on that team because i think it's a really brilliant structure and there's a reason for it i think a lot of times when people try too hard to stay away from the hero's journey they end up at the end realizing like they didn't really have a storyline and i think and which i think is one of the worst parts of the last jedi which my co-host and i have disagreed over a couple times i think that the last jedi tries to stray too far from the hero's journey in context of the star wars saga and that's why it's not successful (laughs) 
I mean, I could probably find bits of Hero's journey in there. Okay, but do you see what happened to Luke? Would that ever happen to the hero and hero's journey? Right, but at this point, that point, Luke's not the hero. We're not going to get into an argument about this. But Luke, mm, at that point, okay. raise the hero. <laughs> raise Fine, the hero. But mm, 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 I, there mm, is an atonement. There is an atonement. Argue, I argue that they completely scrapped the atonement for Rise of Skywalker. I'm not but, talking about the death of Luke. I'm talking about the grumpy pants Luke. Luke should not be grumpy pants Luke because he went through the whole original trilogy and he started off as the whiny baby who just wanted power converters and is now the master Jedi. And then Ryan Johnson turns him into a grumpy pants who drinks... Green milk, which makes me really uncomfortable that he like milked that. I I I'm wasn't not gonna argue into with that. You at that point. No. I wasn't into it. Really, anything on the island. I, I wasn't into that. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think one of the interesting things about the quote from Joseph Campbell from before <laughs> was is that um, it's if you need to explain it, it's already failed. And the thing is that a lot of times, while you might write something specifically tailored to it. You often don't. It's just what what stories are compelling and the way stories are told being compelling is why you can see this applied to all these different um, mythologies, because it's not that these people thought, oh, I'm going to need this part of the story. I'm going to need this part of the story. It's that this is what compel. This is what's compelling to us as humans through oral tradition, through written tradition. This is what's been compelling to us throughout all of time, all of history. So yeah, it's not that I you mean, have to like, write. The it's not story that you have to of mop. Odysseus is the same as this. It, it, this is an the story old... of Jane Eyre follows similar things. Hey, <laughs> Odysseus is older than Jane Eyre. I know, but I'm saying that the two are like oh, okay, centuries apart. Totally different. Okay, 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 okay. And that's why it shows like, the universality of this. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you have to like plot out the journey on that you want the characters to take. Um, in order to make this be compelling, it's that if you find the story, the journey of your character compelling, there's a potentially that it's this is it. And that's why you might fi- might feel that it's way more compelling to you than just, I don't know, then it might and be that, straying away from it, you know? Yeah. Then trying and to I think a lot of people have it in their head that if they use the hero's journey, they're not being creative. Would you say that Star Wars isn't creative? I mean, the creativity is where you apply it to your own world, you know? And it's also the characters. The entire world is yours, but maybe you follow some of the structure of what might happen. And this is something I've had teachers tell me before is that everything is remix, even like Star Wars. There's lots of stuff that you got from Western films, other things like that. There's a theory that nothing is original in this world. Nothing is original. And that, <laughs> That's the same with music. It's like we are all using the same chords at some point. You know, it's just yeah. the way that you put them together. And the way that it would might end up being compelling is this monomyth. And of course, you don't have to use archetypes or even write stuff that fits these archetypes. Compelling stuff doesn't have to be the all be the monomyth, but arguably monomyth is really compelling to lots it's of audiences. It's just really good, and it like, leads to very it leads to very like succinct and very like clear storytelling. And it's something that people want to hear, and they feel good after watching it. Yeah, 
<laughs> after and after you watch a new hope, you're ready to like start your new life. I you get know? chills every time yeah. I hear that credit music. Chewie should have gotten a medal, and thank goodness he gets one in Rise of Skywalker. But you know, you still feel good at the end of a new hope. Yeah. Well, now that we've had that great discussion, we're gonna go into a game. A game. Because I have one written to my contract. We have no contracts. This is just... We have no contracts. (laughs) No contracts for us. So this game is called First Impressions Are Everything. So this is, of course, a Star Wars game. The aim of the game is I will tell you the first word a character in Star Wars says. Oh, my goodness. And you have to guess which character it is. Yes. Okay. There's only one of these that's really as a minor character, but so are these characters? Like if I said, like for example, across old trilogy, new just, trilogy, just the first, just Star Wars, the original movie. Okay. Um, for example, if I said, bleep, 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 you would say, <laughs> wait, what? I think I'm gonna need you to repeat that again one more time. <laughs> for example, if I said, bleep, 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 yeah. You would say... I would say R2-D2. And you would be correct. All right. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's great, right? Bloop, 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 bloop. That gave me a lot of joy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, the first one, the word that they say is Darth. Um, first person who says Darth. Is that Princess Leia? That is correct. That is the yeah, first... Yeah, because she's like, Darth is coming, right? Yeah, no, it's like said, Darth Vader. No, she's not Darth Vader's oh, coming. Oh, no, 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 because she's, she's there. She's, she's brought there to with him. him. She's yeah, brought yeah, to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the first word she says is Darth. Go me. And I'm a big Star Wars fan, by the way. Yeah. Second question. Uh, the first word that this character says is Han. Han? Um... This is across... This is just New Hope. Just... Yeah, just episode four. Um... The first word this character says is Han. Greedo? Incorrect. It is Han Solo himself. Ugh. He says, Han Solo. It's like, oh, like yeah, that was a tricky one. This is a tricky one. I was, I was surprised. I was like, that one's going to be sure. She's going to get that one immediately. That's because he introduces himself. That's when we first learned. Cause, mm. Because Obi-Wan talks with Chewie first, and mm-hmm. that's how he gets, mm-hmm. he talks with Han. Hey, everyone. Mitchell in the editing room here. Just wanted to let you know that the first word that Greedo says is going, as in going somewhere solo. Alright, the next one you might not get. The first word that this character says is fine. Fine? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, Luke Skywalker? It is in fact Owen. Uncle Owen. Aw, Uncle Owen. Yeah, that's the only minor character I include in here. But, yeah. That's... And that was a really ambiguous word, Mitchell. I know, I know. I, know. <laughs> I thrive on this. Now, for the next one, <laughs> the first word that this character says is hello. Um, Ben Kenobi? That is correct. Of course, Yay. his name is Obi-Wan. But... Yeah, no, but when he's introduced at this moment, you know what his name is? That is a technicality. That I got right. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) the first word that this character says is doesn't. I don't like you. Okay. (laughs) Um, Doesn't? There aren't any major characters left. No. 
doesn't... Is that 3PO? It is, in fact, Luke Skywalker. But I already said that. I told you you were wrong. Oh, but it was incorrect. That was incorrect. Uh, yeah. I was thinking that, but... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the next, uh, next one, the uh, first word that this character says is did. Did. C-3PO. You are correct. Now, last question. The first word that this character says is where. Darth Vader? That is correct. Ding, 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 ding. Also, I want to mention that Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen said that Anakin, not naming him as Anakin, of course, but Anakin was a navigator on a spice freighter. When I rewatched this, I noticed this and I was like, wait a minute, Poe is a spice runner. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was really interesting. And I put that under additional notes because I wanted to bring and that up. And if you don't know what spice is in it Star is Wars, drugs. it's drugs. Well, they're not... They're not like they're not exactly drugs, drugs but exa- like, but they can be made into drugs. Yeah, and it's like you don't really run spice to not give them to drugs. And if you watch the new Clone Wars series that has been um, released on Disney Plus, highly recommend. They debate about spice because I'm a nerd. <laughs> you know what also really is Hero's Journey? I think it's the Mandalorian. Here's Journey? Yeah. Which is a great series. So we learned that the hero's journey is really cool. Star Wars is super cool. Joseph Campbell's really cool. And then one Joseph Campbell quote that I wanted to leave with the audience and the various theater artists and artists listening is this one really inspiring quote about you got to just do what you love. And that is... When you follow your bliss, and by bliss, I mean the deep sense of being in it and doing what the pushes out of your own existence, follow that and doors will open where you wouldn't have thought they were going to open and there wouldn't be a door for anyone else. And there's something about the integrity of that life that the world moves in and helps. And, you know, this is a podcast mainly for students and students who love theater. And I think really often we have this wall put up that, you know, we're not going to make it. And theater isn't a job. It's not something that you can get your livelihood off of. But I think Joseph Campbell has this big thing about him where he always says you need to follow your bliss and I think after studying these stories and these civilizations you know the world wants a hero so be a hero you know do what you want to do write plays if you want to write plays be an actor if you want to be an actor work the lighting board if you want to work the lighting board you know do whatever makes you happy because you know, ultimately, that's the most integral life you can live. And that sometimes things work out when you do that. So if you're having a hard time as a theater artist right now, just do what you love. And if what you want to do is to write plays, we love to read your plays and we'd love to put it on here to give you a space to workshop and to hear your work aloud. The link to submit is tinyurl.com slash submit. Again, that is tinyurl.com slash PRP submit. We can't wait to read your plays and to see you follow your bliss. Mitchell, any final thoughts? May the force be with you. Always. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.